0: In today's episode of the Benalytical Podcast, we'll be talking about Karl Marx with Professor of Sociology Tim Bertoni. So one of the main questions that I have for you today is, is, what do you think Marx's view on anti-Semitism and largely Judaism as a whole is?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. Marx um, comes from a strong Jewish heritage, strong lineage actually of rabbis, and interesting his name was given at birth to be Mordecai. Um, was changed to Marcus later, and his father converted uh, to Lutheranism. Um, interesting that um, there's there's this interesting relationship between Judaism and religious Judaism and political or national, um, maybe secular Judaism for Marx. He's He's coming out of the young Hegelian movement. So he's coming from the idealists to really his... Um, historical materialism. And he's pairing up with Engels, really for the first time in Paris. I think they uh, first published The Holy Family in 1844, which is a a, kind of a summary of a discussion and a critique of Marx's professor Bruno Bauer um, who was really an idealist, more of a Hegelian idealist who was Arguing, I think, ultimately that Jews needed to be eradicated in order society to be free. And Marx critiques him uh, really from a materialist perspective as, well, there's a distinction he fails to make between the idealist and the materialist um, view of Judaism. So in his discussion with this kind of Jewish question, as it's been titled, the Jewish question, um, how do the Jews... Um, interacted in the modern capitalist society. Now Marx and Bauer, his professor, are really coming from the Hegelian perspective. So I think that frames it nicely when you talk about the Hegelian dialectic, right, and the criticism and the synthesis model. So for Judaism, just from the idealist perspective, you got to think about um, the, the one and the many synthesizing into the the one within the many, right? And the many within the one synthesis. So from Hegel, he uh, theorized that really the God consciousness is revealed through human history, particularly through idealism, through religion, right? So the Jews were the the thesis of monotheism, the one. Um, Even ancient Greek had kind of elements, right? The one the one and the many problem. But the Jews synthesized really the notion of oneness. God is one. And so Hegel is theorizing again that the one and the many through history, God consciousness is coming to our consciousness, our awareness, self-consciousness in Christianity. So Christianity is the great synthesis between the one and the many, right? The, The Trinity, the many within the one, the one within the many. And so I think that is particularly in Germany the eyes in which kind of the intellectual at least the Hegelian community and Marx is ultimately looking through that Christianity is the essence the the synthesis the final synthesis right I mean it's the final synthesis Hegel Hegelianism and the, the dialectic is the final synthesis everything else is just going to work out through you know philosophy and Uh, the arts, right? Religion has reached its final synthesis. So, um, in Christianity. So that really frames, I think, the beginning of the discussion from an idealist perspective. And I think Bauer can really expound upon that, that the Jews need to be, you know, not citizens, not part of our community because they're holding back our consciousness, our societal, the civil society, as Hegel would say, right? They're holding back that synthesis, that explanation, of the civil society, because they reject, again, Christ, right? They're rejecting the one and the many. They're rejecting the Trinity. Uh, they're, they're essentially rejecting the final synthesis. And then Marx brings in the critique of the idealists. And so having been trained, right, in the university, even by Bauer, Marx criticism has, criticizes his idealism uh, with, a Marx, with a materialist critique that is ultimately, well, he fails to make the distinction between, as Marx sees it, the... Um, the religious Jew and the secular Jew, or the the political Jew, I think is how he uses the term, the worldly Jew, yeah. And so I think he makes a, a further distinction between being free in the state, you can be free, but ultimately in human terms, you're only free if religion is eradicated, right? So that's the full synthesis. So Marx can see that working itself out. I mean, he's a dialectical theorist, so it's in process. It seems that Bauer is very uh, adamant on this point. Now Marx, interestingly enough, right? I mean, he's got this strong Jewish heritage, just strong family heritage. <clears throat> but he, he seems in Engels he um, is, is writing the Holy Family, at least publishing it in 1844, before the Communist Manifesto. So we have, again, this basis of the Jews, in the secular sense, really monotheistically symbolizing um, the capitalist system, right? So the Jew, for Marx, is really the, the capitalist, right? In, in that the, the capitalist system is driven by money. So I think, I think there's an interesting uh, dialogue between how Marx describes the secular Jew as really the money god, right? The money worshiper um, and loses their religious to their materialist position. So Marx makes that materialist move over to the practical uh, kind of atheism of the Jewish community.
0: My main questions were having to do with, um, like, if you could expound kind of on what Marx meant by the practical Jew, or practical Judaism even, like what that means. Um, And then as well, like, what was Marx's, like, religious... Uh, affiliation, like was he Lutheran? Like his parents was it? Was he atheist? Like what? Where was his kind of religious allegiance lying? Yeah, I think he.
1: I mean, it seems to be on his mother's side, even on his father's side, that he was um, in line for the, you know, being a rabbi, which is an interesting uh, profession. His father converts because his father is um, a lawyer, I guess, and sees him himself is not really progressing so you have to you have to sense there was some dissatisfaction with the religious jew Um, and being able to give up your religion for the sake of the political for the political economic means of life shows who your god is right i mean so marx is talking from personal experience maybe his own father right that his uh, dad had given up his religion for money position power and prestige so i think that's the practical jew Right. The practical Jew is, is oriented toward um, you know, observable commandments, uh, doable um, physical actions, right? You think of the, uh, the symbolism uh, for the Jew, but it's it's worked out in the Passover. It's worked out in the feasts. It's worked out very practically and observable you know, empirically, right? So the Jew is oriented toward that. I think that's what Marx is saying. And again, I think he has his own family's perspective and his family's perspective is leading rabbis, right? Of generations in Germany itself, right? So this is the height of Judaism. Marx's family is that kind of symbol, right? So I think from that perspective, he's saying the Jew is the, the practical, you know, expressing of their faith. And I think, I think the picture really, if you can take it personally, that Mark sees what his dad has done is really symbolizing what the Jew has done in in, in whole. You gave up your religion so that you could have a career. Uh, and I think Mark, yeah, you're not the only one, Dad, right? That's that's something interesting as well, because the
0: character that we're looking at in the in the paper that I wrote was is Menno Berg, and he he actually uh, was given the opportunity to abandon his faith to kind of progress in the military community. I mean, he was yeah. he was told to be before being uh, brought, promoted to an officership. The king of Prussia actually refused him personally, and he said, uh, "If you were baptized, he invited him to be baptized okay. to get the officership." And Menelberg actually refused. Oh no, can't And he, he wouldn't have gotten the officership had he not had a close relationship with the king's son, who defended Berg on behalf of, of I guess himself, Berg. Yeah, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's an interesting thing as well, kind of seeing, um, I guess, almost a sort of an antithesis to Marx's view of Jews is actually Mennoberg as he yeah. refused this sort of empirical view. He's not going to pursue a career above his religious views. Yeah. But um, something I would have mentioned as well is, is yeah. Marx's own like economic standing, I guess, because he is kind of living what he – I guess he's practicing what he preaches, I guess you could say, because he isn't pursuing a, a career – at least a successful one, intentionally for, you know, some kind of outburst. I mean, by the time he dies, he's he's pretty poor and un, and pretty unpopular. I think, Yeah, I believe, yeah, right?
1: yeah. I, yeah. Marx never really got the university position, although he was, you know, a PhD, and it's it's known that he really wasn't a rhetorician. He wasn't uh, speaking in public often. You know, he was a writer, and a quiet life. Lived a very quiet life in that sense, um, behind the scenes. Revolutionary, but too radical for the university. So his, you know, the person he's in discussion with, um, Bruno Bauer, uh, was too radical, right? As a a Hegelian and kind of rejecting, kind of this, kind of extreme view of it. Well, Marx was even more of an extreme intellectual, and there just wasn't um, room for him in a conservative university. Um, So he found his his living, writing pamphlets and selling his his pieces even to the New York Tribune uh, for, for years uh, as a kind of an international correspondent during the Civil War in America, interestingly enough. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's, that's interesting as well because when we first come across his, his question of the Jew manuscript, it was actually published in Paris. It, wasn't, yeah. it was first published, I think, by a small German publication, but it didn't gain any traction. Yeah. And so I think he actually sent it to a, a, a Perusian uh, publication and they actually published it for him. On, on that, on his behalf, um, so he, got, he was actually more popular in France than he was in in Germany, Prussia at that time. Interesting. So that's to yeah, that's well. interesting.
1: Yeah, that's where he meets Engel or Engels, and I think this you know, the Holy Family is their first collaboration, uh, and I think it is published in Paris in 1844. So, yeah, interesting. And then, of course, where I'm interested in too is how Durkheim, Emile Durkheim, uh, the French sociologist, who has a very similar story um, in the line of rabbis. Uh, becomes an atheist and becomes, you know, a scholar of scholars and creating sociology in France. So I think there's an interesting trend. I think you've you've tapped into kind of, you know, the modern dilemma of solidarity. Right? The, how do you, in the urban city, in the in the new society, how do you keep your historical ethnic religion how do you how do you synthesize how do you work within this ancient identity into a modern age and that's what they're struggling with right and then in marx of course this is the heart of alienation and religion and religious and political illusion need to you know are like drugs right or opiates so you need to get you need to get rid of them what is interesting is that it seems that bauer is much more eager to get rid of them <laughs> than even Marx was making a distinction that, well, it's more of a process. He's kind of rushing the Hegelian process, uh, maybe, and certainly criticizing him on, on ideological ends. But uh, Marx, Marx makes, makes the point, again, that for the Jew, the God um, of Israel is money, right? The, the new God is, is the God of money. And he now becomes the figure Of capitalism itself, so Marx, you know, the Jew becomes the capitalist in essence, Uh, and even the Christian, right, is really more like a Jew than than a Jew, right, and and so that they worship the same, right, in that sense.
0: Yeah, something he mentioned as well was, um, I think it was taking uh, how many steps uh, he was talking about taking how many steps. The Christians had to basically breaking or or breaking free from this slavery of capitalism versus yeah. the Jews. Oh, and he okay. says the Jews have two steps to take because first they have to become uh, overcome their own their own nature, their yeah. own capitalistic nature. Whereas, whereas the Christians only have to overcome one, which is what the capitalist nature has put them in. Oh, so it's it's an it's it's an interesting distinction that Marx makes as well with how close yeah, uh, Christians and Jews are in sort of that capitalistic. Uh, orientation I guess you could say yeah, yeah there's an interesting quote uh, from Marx's piece uh, on the question of the Jew where he says man emancipates himself politically from religion by banishing it from the sphere of public law to that of private law religion is no longer the spirit of the state in which man behaves although in a limited way in a particular form and in a particular sphere as a species being in community with other men religion has become the spirit of civil society of the sphere of egoism of bellium ominum contra onis. It is no longer the essence of community, but the essence of difference. Interesting. Yeah, I think, again, there's a lot of Hegelian terminology in there. So I guess an interesting question to pose would be, like, does Marx believe in uh, a corporate form of worship, or is it more of a private affair in his, in his understanding?
1: Yeah, I think clearly, from the Hegelian perspective, it's part of civil uh, society. Um, civil society isn't political society. It's not the state, right? So religion is separate from the state. Um, and so it becomes a private affair. But for Marx, I think this is where he's he's making the distinction. You can have a state uh, that is free and open, right? Um, the individual can still be enslaved. So this is where Marx is going to be, again, kind of the process theorist, that the Jew or the Christian is still alienated from his essence because he he doesn't realize himself right his famous thesis on religion is that it's an opiate it it expresses the real yearning the real cry of the human heart um, but it doesn't take hold of it right and i think i mean marx writes so powerfully on this and i think maybe relevant for your study uh, on luther that you know german, the german theologian martin luther who started the reformation was the the right, he had the right movement, right? He had the right essence in that he was fighting religion, the oppression of religion. And yet he was a prophet, right? And not a philosopher. And that was his downfall, is that he he made the, he, he took away the oppression of the state, as it were, right? The state of the Pope, the church, state and church relationship. Luther, you know, took it out of the Holy Roman Empire, right? Took the holy, right? Took secular, I mean, made it, he created a religion um, away from the state religion. And so Marx, I think that's a great picture of how Marx sees religion is that, yeah, Luther was right there. But what Luther did is that he brought the chains to his inner heart, right? So it wasn't, it was no longer, you know, forbidden to go to church or forbidden to preach and to teach these the- theological um, doctrines that were heresy, right? but, but that he's you're free to do that, but you you've now become the the inner, you know, you become a slave to yourself, right? Religion has, particularly Christianity, has enslaved the human soul, right? You're in a slave relationship. And I think that's how Marx sees religion. You can be there, there's a distinction between the state, and the civil society. And so the civil society is more of the, again, how you live in community, and you can still be in a religious community. But ultimately, you would not you'd still be alienated. Uh, but in the state, you may have rights. Mm.
0: Right. That's Something interesting to note as well is this is almost, you could say, the, the origin of identity politics is kind of dividing citizens by religion, in in sort of social standing instead of just sort of where they identify themselves. So he kind of says, this is a quote from his, um, on the Jewish question as well, this says, The the decomposition of man into Jew and citizen, Protestant and citizen, religious man and citizen, is neither a deception directed against citizenhood, nor is it a circumvention of political emancipation. It is political emancipation itself. The political method of emancipating oneself from religion so that's something interesting as well as kind of seeing where um, he kind of he kind of sees citizenship even lying. like what what his, what is the ideal citizen for Marx like yeah. is it a religious person is someone that's free from religion is it someone who is um, more materialist like himself or does he see kind of a positivity with um, I guess discourse with people who think differently
1: Yeah, I think I think there's a misconception here of Marxism for sure. I think in America, uh, communism and Marxism is just you know, a, a byword, as in maybe Europe is the manifesto seems to open up with as well. But I think you know he's for the emancipation of of mankind. Marx is ultimately for the human realization of its essence, right? The summation, the synthesis, of being fully human. Um, and so, for Marx, religion is is an imaginary flower, you know. And and I think I think of that. I think is description is so apt and so poignant in that it gives the sense that it's real and beauty and fragrant but the uh, the plastic flower you know when we drive uh, to work uh, there's a graveyard um, many acres and many graves and it's all colored and flowers are everywhere but you look closer and you find out what actually is required by the local um, mortuary and by the funeral homes, right, are required. If you're going to bury somebody there, you need to have plastic flowers. You can't put real flowers in. (laughs) You know, what? I mean, this, you're, that, that's the expression. That's kind of the alienation. You're going to put, you're going to memorialize somebody with plastic flowers. I mean, it has the appearance of beauty and a good sentiment, but don't put plastic flowers on my graveside, right? I mean, it's, it's an illusion, right? It's a, it's a chain. And so I think that's where Marx ultimately is. You may think it's beautiful, you may think it's self-expressive, um, and it certainly does get at the yearnings of the heart, but it's, um, religion is, is not the full realization of being human, right? It's not the full realization of being a man
0: so i guess the the next obvious question would be what is the full realization of humanity for Marx? like is yeah. is there any value at all to religion in a sort of corporate um, society is there anything beneficial about um having sort of an idealist faith
1: yeah i um i think marx is an idealist i think i think we can say that uh, when you think of communism uh, being idealistic in terms that it would it, it, marx seems to think right it's this hegelian dialectic is just going to work itself out through these stages and it seems that it'll just naturally in terms of evolution um just evolve to the next stage and we would be able to you know like rousseau you know live in society and we're born free without having the chains any longer right all you have to do is lose the chains um now that's a that's a process for sure but once you lose the chains what is the full essence of human of human being i think it's in every way you're connected to nature, right? You're connected to each other. Um, you're connected to sociability. I mean, it, it's it's a social reality, right? We're social beings. So I think egoism and I think uh, certainly selfishness, war. I mean, for Marx, all social problems are the heart, right, of this conflict and this private property. So once we get out of that private property and the property question, um, and the full realization of what it means to be human. And I I think we can go back to primitive communism and kind of get our our essence. So if we're talking about Marxism and Hegelianism or um, Aristotelian influence here, you can really think to the primitive communist stage as the seed form, as the essence of what is ultimately becoming, right? So communism would be the final synthesis uh, of what, right? Of the process, of what has already been here, right? Being human in our societal structure. So, you know, the primitive communism, tribal society seems to be again, for Marx, for Rousseau, the noble savage idea. But it's working out with all the material benefits of technology, with all the um, the power of the world and global society, right? So it's a it's something that he thinks is just going to be a natural turning, right? a natural. Um, evolutionary synthesis. It's not that we negate it and, and get rid of it all. And I think that's what Marx is dealing with. Um, and maybe you see that here in more than his other writings, that you can't fully, as, as he talked about Luther, he was so close, right? The German emancipation, he was so close, uh, yet he was, the, he was the theological answer, right? He wasn't the materialist answer, he was still the idealist answer, mm-hmm. right? It was just the idealism of the heart, turned toward the heart where marx is saying now now the full german reformation is at hand and the philosophers are in charge right which is the full essence of truth is the philosophical truth religion being a symbol right and the arts being a symbol but philosophy being the highest realization and the
0: you know statements of truth the essence of truth so i guess if if marx's um, understanding of of the ultimate i guess chief end of man being as close to nature as possible um and kind of emancipating themselves from class or religion um i guess that sort of explains why he would see um jews certainly at the at the bottom of that because they're kind of the beginning of classism where classes were yeah. derived within basically origin of capitalism yeah. which he believes to be kind of the fault of the jews and then that's that would be kind of why i guess he sees a Sort of more moderate view on Christianity, whereas they're not as far gone as the Jews, but they're still not grasping the full picture right. quite like like you put with Luther. He's so close to that yeah. German emancipation. So how how would Marx say that he himself kind of fulfilled his fulfillment? Like like where does he lie on that spectrum of of succeeding at the chief end of man in his own kind of philosophy?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I think. I'm not entirely sure how he, at the end, I know um, he had some misgivings about his early philosophy. So when we're talking about this and he's working it out, working it out, right? With Engels and Marx are working it out for, you know, 30 years, they're writing. He gives some warnings even to his older theories that it's maybe not so deterministic, that it maybe it you know, doesn't have to go through all these stages. So I think um, you're at the height, at least in this writing here, at his most ardent idealist kind of self as he's gonna get kicked out of paris right brussels as he you know lives a life of poverty and children literally his children dying um, because of his uh, lack of means um, and suffering with his wife you know just wearing on him over the next 30 years Uh, put some (laughs) you know wish 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 the revolution came sooner you know, he, he was being um, crushed by capitalism, right? And, and by the economic systems, institutions of society. So, interesting figure. I, I don't think he ever saw it. I, I think they thought it would come sooner, right? And, and so have Marxists to this day. Um, why didn't it happen in Germany so soon, you know, so quickly? It was just ultimately crushed, right? And, and ultimately, you know, politically maybe got some, got some ends made with um, child labor and public education and certainly in Britain and uh, Germany sooner than America. But the process was much more piecemeal and painful than he hoped, right? Than he thought he was ready for the German emancipation.
0: So, I just have two more questions for you and then we'll let you go. But um, so, by the time that our main figure of, of the research that I've been doing, Nenno um, Berg, dies from, uh, he's one of the first victims actually of the cholera epidemic.
1: What's his life? What's his time frame here?
0: He, he's, he was born in uh, 1789 and dies in 1853. Okay. so he, he lives about 60 years um so yeah that, that's actually kind of going on what i was going to ask you how how so our our character dies 1853 how is marx's work being kind of accepted and sort of uh thought about over from 1853 um over into the early 20th century kind of that move because obviously we see a lot more um a lot a lot more marxist thinking and neo-marxist as well kind of going yes. through that modern postmodern era yeah so where where does that shift kind of happen from from marx's near anonymity to kind of blowing into this huge um movement yeah
1: i mean by his death Ingalls is gonna eulogize him to say you know, he one of his greatest achievements was creating the international Workingmen's association right in his lifetime um you know, wish it were you know any man to do one thing in life. Marx did many others. You know, published in many different fields, and um, you know he was like uh, like how Engels puts him. He, he said he's a Darwin and like a Newton, or right? he discovers the law of motion of capitalism, and he discovered the laws of human history, right? And like Darwin discovered organic nature, right? So, um, Marx certainly had a political voice, and people were, particularly in Paris, right, um, taken in England, taken by him. Um, Interesting to note, when I uh, read Weber, who was a German sociologist, uh, at one of the first uh, German associations, uh, the first coming together of sociologists in a professional setting, Weber makes the comment that, why is everyone talking about Marx? why are all the papers talking about Marx? And Weber, you know, was a scholar, scholar known as quite the uh, quite the philosopher and basically a PhD and postdoc and was considered the next great, you know, German theorist. So in, you know, 1904, he's hearing Marx and Marx and Marx and Weber offers a critique of Marx and, you know, seemed to be pretty clear to him that why are we still talking about Marx when it didn't happen? It didn't come to pass, right? Um, he's he's a one-dimensional theorist. Everything is based on economics, determines it all. Um, he's after the laws of society. And, and Weber's thinking, aren't we getting past this yet? Right? Why is that rational to us? Why do we want to deal with that? That's not the uh, the human sciences or a social science we want any part of, right the materialist one-dimensional um, man right and it didn't come to pass so it's, it's like a failed prophecy right why did why are we talking about it? Um, but again, Weber's going to live through the early you know, 20th century, World War one and you know communism hasn't even got started yet right in, in real political terms. So I think there's certainly underestimation. And I think particularly in France with the already intellectual community from St. Simon and Rousseau and the French Revolution, that you have much more um, resonance with kind of socialist, uh, communist ideas um, than you do maybe in Germany. I'm not um, aware of kind of a a lot of the German um, historical uh, evolution so uh, I, I just speak from at least in france i know it's well right? it's it's well pronounced um, and i think in britain uh, the empiricist bent um, and you know kind of the the darwinist spencer right social darwinism uh, survival of the fittest is being the best answer for society right um, is, is gaining traction at, at that time although you know marx lives peacefully i guess and in poverty, in England anyway. So I'm not sure that answered your question, but... (laughs)
0: That's all right. right. Um, Yeah, my last question would kind of be, I guess you kind of mentioned with uh, Weber, kind of this move, uh, at least that he noticed, or at least he didn't, I guess he didn't think it was very significant, but kind of this move of um, kind of seeing economics as the king of all instead of kind of this class, or it was very class-oriented, but instead of moving kind of from a racial and tribalistic sense more into this economic division of classes yeah which we i mean we still see today obviously yeah um, and i think will become more pronounced in the coming years as well um but how do you think marx was would have interpreted um the albeit weak attempts that communism has been given in the east um and do you think it would ever succeed in a western country i think i think diversity has a lot to play with how these sort of economic system works, so I don't, I don't personally think that it would work very well in a Western yeah. country, yeah, yeah, um, just because diversity alone has has so much value that we've given it, where um, I think it would be very difficult to kind of get something like that moving. Yeah. But do you think that it would have any success in a Western country, and how do you think he would measure it um, to his own standards as it's been tried? Yeah, I think,
1: I think in the manifesto, you know, it has a has a pretty large section on. The failed attempts of socialism, right, and what he's not saying. Uh, He's not talking about a bourgeois revolution. He's not talking about kind of a Bernie Sanders, right, in our present American situation. He, He wants a full emancipation, right, and the eradication of private property, right? And then once you take that element of private property out and private families, right, you get rid of the greatest mechanism of creating inequality. And and so if you take that out, then I guess by essence you would create equality, right? So now how can that equality be realized? Uh, I think to your point is, well, you got diversity of civil society, right? You got the diversity of culture and what it means to people. So how do you have socialism, communism with uh, people from different languages, different religions, different ethnicities, right? Is that I think that's what you're saying, right? Is that you couldn't have sameness, right? You couldn't have equal outcome because everyone doesn't define their needs the same, right? Or their wants the same. And I think maybe that is certainly the critique, right? Of kind of Marxism and how can it be realized? And I think Weber, I mean, I would side with Weber that you know, we are a multidimensional being and having the full expression of our um, humanness is quite unique and varied and that makes us, you know, beautifully human. But what scares me the most, I mean, as a sociologist looking at our modern age is that, you know, the, the standardization, right, of our culture, the standardization of academics, the standard, everything is being standardized that's kind of the great bureaucratic machine uh, that is moving toward this oneness and sameness, right? Of administration uh, that is certainly one-dimensional, and I think in that sense, I think it's it's um, it's frighteningly here in certain ways, right? I think. Um, you know, maybe the one voice, the one, you know, it's kind of the political corrective, you know, movement. Um, do we celebrate diversity? <laughs> right? I mean, we say we do, um, but we really, you know, only how we interpret it, right? Only as, as we know
0: it, yeah. right? So. I mean, you could even say only the diversity that our culture allows us to value. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Like, yeah. Do you value the diversity of race? Do you value the diversity of experience? I mean, yeah. what kind of diversity do you value? Yeah, right. Uh, another thing I was going to bring up just quickly is you kind of mentioned standardization. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting new theory kind of going around on Pareto distribution. Yeah, the Pareto effect. Oh, that's a uh, very versus, old theory. <laughs> versus, well, it's, it's been newly relevant. I yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But people uh,
1: discovered it, maybe. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, basically, this this uh, difference in standardized uh, versus Pareto distribution. So, yeah, I just, I just wondered if you had anything to say on this because a lot of people um, think that wealth often becomes standardized and sort of um, distributed over a standard uh, deviation system. So there's a peak in the middle and it stays in the middle class or whatever it is, yeah. and there's extremities on on the lower class end and the higher class end. When in reality, it's wealth specifically and inequality as well is much. Uh, more defined on the extremities so there's there's the large extremes of inequality um, where most where the largest section of people experience the most inequality and the same thing is is true for we- wealth as well where the, the smallest number of people own more wealth than anyone else in the world yeah. so I just wondered if you had anything to add to that as well
1: no I think you're right yeah I think uh, the Pareto effect is something to be I think it's yeah to be re rediscovered for our age and um, again, the, the energy, the societal energy you would take uh, to create um, equality or standardization would be draconian, would be, um, and, I, and I think about the power of the state today. Here we are, um, you know, quarantined, right? Um, colossal feat. I mean, in 330 million people, Um, And in the state we're in, we're gonna be opening up on Monday, I guess, more so. But um, yeah, the power of the state that it'll take to make sure everyone is equal or everyone has the same opportunities is itself gonna be um, a frightening reality for administration, a frightening um, bureaucratic nightmare. And I think Weber says it well when he says, when he's sitting, again, I think, early 20th century writing about bureaucracy, what he sees ahead is not a summer's bloom for society, but an icy uh, winter, right? And I, I go back, and maybe I'll end with this statement. I think our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, was well said when he quoted the Latin Roman phrase that I prefer the dangers, the perilousness, I think, Right. Um, of of liberty than to the um, to the quiet of solitude or the quiet of slavery servitude right and the bureaucratic state is creating servants right the bureaucratic inst- educational institution is creating instructors right not free thinking professors right the political correctness movement and right? it's a it's a dangerous notion and and i can just think that Maybe in your generation, again, the youth generation seems to be more awakened to this now, and maybe this movement of the coronavirus will help us imagine it's dangerous to be free, physically dangerous, <laughs> right? but I rather prefer that right, than to a life of servitude, um, to the quiet of servitude and being you know, alienated and not becoming, not
0: being full. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I'll see you next time.